Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Delton Chen. Uh, Dr. Delton Chen is the founder of Global Carbon Reward Initiative, and he's a pioneer in the research field for carbon quantitative easing. Hey, Delton, how's it going in uh, Brisbane? Great, thank you, Jonas, and thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dalton, could you please tell us about your personal journey? I know you're a hydrologist, a chemical engineer, but you've also been part of Project Drawdown. And yeah, how did you stumble up on this idea for Global Carbon Reward? Well, Jonas, it all began in 2013 when I was having a life change. I was traveling and I decided I really wanted to do something concrete in the climate change sphere. And I had an intuition that economics was failing us and that there must be another way to provide scalable finance for rapid climate mitigation. And so I was looking and thinking about currencies at that time. And so it was kind of a naive decision, but I had the time and money to look at this. So I started in 2013. On, on your website for Global Carbon Reward, you have three phases. And the first phase is the you know, discovery phase, right, from 2014 to 2020. Yes. Uh, could you tell us more about that phase? Well, Jonas, it was a, a very long and arduous experience because I really began with just a, an intuition, actually. I didn't have a policy when I started and nobody asked me to do this. So I was um, trying out a new idea that we could possibly innovate a new currency system to fund climate mitigation. And I just played with the idea in terms of the unit of account how the store of value could be managed, what kind of social agreements would be needed. And it didn't take me very long, actually, to come up with a, a rough policy that looked very interesting. So the first concept I came up with was maybe an energy-backed currency or a carbon-backed currency, and that if we introduced that as a reward, a kind of a positive incentive, it would be possible to pay for this incentive without charging any taxes. We could monetize it and pay for it with monetary policy. And so with this new approach, it seemed to have a lot of potential to circumvent a lot of the political conflict we have over cost sharing. And this political conflict is occurring at all levels of society. It's occurring between governments, as we can see under the UNFCCC. It's occurring uh, between businesses because many businesses don't want to pay carbon taxes because they are um, afraid of the costs. And then Within society itself, individuals, we have conflict over the ideologies behind climate change and taxes and even whether climate change is real. So what this says to me is that we do need another price signal that can circumvent these conflicts and help pay for the mitigation uh, without relying just on the sticks, which are the, the taxes and regulations. So that was the inspiration. And from that point on, I just uh, looked at it more and more detail. And according to what you said before, I've been working on this for quite a long time, from 2014 right through to 2020 or even this year. 
And the reason it took so long is because I had to develop and derive new theory. And the problem was that the standard economic theory on carbon pricing doesn't have enough scope to explain a reward-based policy using a currency. So I had to address some fundamental questions, including if we use this policy, what is the objective? And this point about the objective is really very important because I noticed that the economists have objectives for carbon taxes and so on, subsidies. Their objectives are being mixed up. And to explain it in more detail, we'll have to go into the theory, but that's what took so long, uh, working out the fundamentals of this theory, and it gets very deep. I'm really excited for this podcast because there's very little innovative research regarding monetary policy, and there's definitely an issue with how we can actually resolve these multi-trillion dollar gaps in the timescale that's needed. So could you tell us about the two objectives of the uh, global carbon reward? Because, you know, central bankers, they usually have one or two mandates, whether it's full employment or maintaining inflation or stability. Well, the central banks have their objectives, just like you said, managing price stability, sometimes full employment, money supply, and so on. Also, central banks are very much concerned about systemic risks, so they tend to regulate banking system. When I was mentioning the two objectives, I was actually referring to two specific objectives in economics. So the first is very well known. It's the efficiency objective, and that's generally associated with the theory of Arthur Begu, who put forward the notion of uh, positive and negative externalities and the need to tax them, tax the negatives, or provide subsidies for the positive externality. And our listeners would probably have heard of the social cost of carbon. So all that theory really is about balancing costs with benefits. And so if you look at costs and benefits as a ratio, what you end up with is an efficiency statement. And and so that's a one objective, optimizing or maximizing efficiency of the economy. And you know, they say that the market failure is just an inefficiency because the damages aren't being accounted for. But there is another objective, the second objective, which is often confused with the efficiency objective. And the second objective is effectiveness. Effectiveness is about making sure an objective happens regardless of the cost. This is really applicable to risk because when we have a problem that's highly risky, we're not so concerned about the costs because they're hard to estimate. We're more concerned about the probability of being able to avoid these extreme damages. And so what I argue is that, in fact, there are two major objectives in the climate change problem. The first I mentioned is the efficiency objective, and the second is risk management. Now, the problem is that in mainstream economics, the economists are mixing up these two objectives in an ad hoc way, and they do not have a theory that explains how to manage those two objectives with explicit prices on carbon. And so what's radically different here is that I propose that there is a more general theory that's missing in the, t- in the textbooks. And I just call this theory carbon pricing matrix. And the matrix is a two by two matrix that explains all of the major pricing policies and thereby explaining all the major social relationships that can be used to manage our carbon balance. And one of the really special features of, the, of this matrix is that it explains how or why the efficiency and and the risks of climate change both should be priced through this matrix. So that's what's unique. 
this potentially is a major breakthrough. Unfortunately, it's probably the least known theoretical breakthrough in the world at the moment. I think in uh, one of your presentations, you mentioned that global carbon reward concept or carbon quantitative easing concept is mm. a combination of the three mega trends, right? Quantitative easing, central bank digital currencies, and having central banks uh, think about uh, climate change in their mandate reviews. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you mentioned, like a lot of people don't know about it, but recently, uh, Kim Stanley uh, Robinson, who is a very famous science fiction author, wrote his book, uh, Ministry for the Future. And you were sort of the inspiration regarding uh, the currency side. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. Those people who like science fiction probably have heard of Kim Stanley Robinson. He's written lots of books and he tends to write stories that have a scientific basis and Robinson is very interested in climate change in our near future. So his most recent novel, The Ministry for the Future, it tells a story of what could happen in the next 30 years or so, including all of the um, global warming, sea level rise, heat waves, etc. that we expect. And he introduces characters that are trying to solve the crisis and uh, they're, they're talking about their life experiences. And what's important to me about his novel is that he structured the plot around what he calls a carbon coin. So he offers us a resolution to the economics of climate change in his novel. And the carbon coin concept is actually based on a paper I wrote in 2017 with my colleagues. And he actually read that paper and then got the idea for carbon coin. And that's why he talks about carbon quantitative easing, which is proposed monetary policy to underwrite or support the value of the carbon coin. In our policy, which is the real world policy, we call it the carbon currency. But in the novel, it's called carbon coin. And the point is that he and I both tend to agree that if we introduce a new monetary system, we can fundamentally change the nature of how society values uh, the environment and the global commons. Because if we look at our current situation in terms of macroeconomic trends and so on, the world economy clearly is not sustainable as it is. Now, earlier I mentioned the carbon pricing matrix. This is why it's so important. The matrix actually shows how a carbon currency is related to the neoclassical policies such as cap and trade, carbon taxes and subsidies. They're the four policies actually of the matrix. And so the matrix has some fundamental properties that haven't really been discussed by economists. And this is why I think it's such an interesting approach. Slowly but surely, I think more and more people will find out about this concept of uh, carbon quantitative easing, especially recently there were two Bloomberg articles. There's now a Wikipedia page. So the information is spreading out. You mentioned the carbon coin, the carbon currency. Could you dive deeper into that? I know from your literature, it's not considered as a legal tender and it does not create debt and doesn't have any direct cost. Yes, thanks for mentioning that because these are the key characteristics of the proposed carbon currency. And it would be a big surprise to many people that we could even design such an economic instrument. So the carbon currency, as it's described and explained under our policy, has the property of being a store of value, primarily. It's not intended to be a medium of exchange, meaning we wouldn't need it for buying and selling goods and services. You wouldn't use it when you go to the supermarket. It's more like, uh, dare I say, a bit more like a cryptocurrency in that you know people 
mainly use cryptocurrencies as a speculative investment. The difference here with the carbon currency is that it would be very low risk because the value would be programmed or pegged to rise over many decades. And that's what we call the floor price. So the central banks are involved in this policy. They would need to be given a mandate, a new mandate, to manage the carbon currency by trading it and ensuring that its exchange rate does continue to rise above its floor price, which would be assessed and prescribed to make sure we get to the Paris Climate Agreement. It is debt-free. That's another very important feature. When, when the carbon currency is issued as a reward, there is no interest charge on the new currency. So it's not like when you go to the bank and borrow money. If you do that, the bank will create money to lend to you, but you have to pay back with interest. In the carbon currency, there are no interest payments because the bond, if you like, or the, the value is in the service agreement that the enterprise would enter into to earn the reward. So this service level agreement really bonds the enterprise into providing a good service to sequester, avoid, or remove carbon from the atmosphere over the long term. And that's what the carbon currency is about. It's about representing a mass of carbon that's safely mitigated. And by that point, the carbon currency is by definition a representative currency. Another example would be a gold-backed fiat currency, such as we had during the Bretton Woods period after World War II. The US dollar was corresponding in value to gold, so 35 US dollars per ounce of gold. In this policy, the relationship between the value of the carbon currency and the mitigated mass of carbon is changing because we want to increase the reward over time to get to our final objective. So that that's pretty much it in a nutshell. That's probably the most important features. Uh, I think you did a great job with your website because you can see all the definitions when you scroll down the bottom at different pages. So I definitely highly recommend the listeners to check out uh, your website. Uh, but now uh, you mentioned the carbon currency could you delve deeper into the pricing theory, right? How do you incorporate the risk cost of carbon? How is the minimum exchange rate that's supposed to be set? If I'm not mistaken, one unit of CO2 or equivalent is equal to one unit of currency, something along the lines of that. And the floor price, if I'm not mistaken, is rolling for 100 years. And for like the 80, 90 years, there's some form of forward guidance from the central banks. Yeah, they're really uh, interesting points. So I think the best place to start in explaining how the currency works is to begin with the unit of account, because the unit of account of any currency really sets the context for how it works. In this case, it's specifically one metric ton of CO2 equivalent that's been mitigated for a 100-year duration. So if we know that carbon has been mitigated for that time, we can issue one unit of currency to the enterprise. Now, you're talking about the long-term value and the forward guidance and so on. I'll just to explain that, first of all, we would need a new institution to manage the carbon currency. It would have to look at the entire situation globally in terms of where we're headed with greenhouse gas emissions, the positive climate feedbacks, the risks that are involved. For example, we have thawing permafrost, the Amazon's desiccating is being deforested. Then we have carbon lock-in, meaning our infrastructure is difficult to 
uh, retrofit because we have so much invested in pipes and roads and cars and trucks and stuff. And, and then all the mitigation technologies are not so simple. You know, you could think of all the different ways we could generate energy, but it's still tricky building all those solar panels and the, the batteries and everything. So there are a lot of problems and technical problems and social problems to overcome, including political resistance, laws, biases, financial contracts. So if we consider everything that's stopping us from mitigating, and we'll just describe all that structural barrier as collectively the systemic risk or the barrier to mitigation. What, what the new authority's got to do is got to figure out what price do we need to pay to make sure enterprises reduce their emissions or take carbon out of the atmosphere at the right rate to achieve the Paris goals. So they would have to develop what's called a abatement cost curve for all of these kinds of technologies. And then into the future, propose our reward price. In some respects, it's analogous to the way economists figure out the social cost of carbon for the tax. However, as I said earlier, the decision paradigm here is not efficiency. It's effectiveness. So we're not trying to match costs with benefits. We're just trying to manage the risks, the systemic risks. So we're not bound by fish. Once we work out the reward price over the next, say, 50 to 100 years, the authority, what it's going to do, it's going to promise that we are going to enforce that floor price for, say, 10 or 15 years into the future. And the central banks around the world will be coordinated with their currency trading to make sure that happens. So whenever people buy and sell the currency, the price will simply never fall below the floor. It will always stay above because the central banks are there to buy it as needed. Now, the Ford guidance is beyond that 10 or 20 years. It's like right up for 100 years. And the reason we have the Ford guidance is to allow companies and investors to see what's happening into the future and have a feel for what the price is going to be. However, we don't want to lock ourselves into that forward guidance because it's too far in the future. What we'll do is every five or 10 years, it'll be updated. And investors will know that the, the next 10 or 20 years will always be guaranteed. So it won't be revised lower. That way, when energy companies and businesses are investing in major new capital, like they might have to build out whole new energy distribution systems, they know that they will get that floor price at a minimum. And that way it helps to de-risk these very large investments that they'll have to make to transition out of fossil fuels. So that's the thinking behind it. It's, it's in effect to help de-risk the investments and to allow all sectors of the economy to plan for rapid decarbonisation in order to meet the Paris goals. I think floor price is a very important concept, and this has been a big issue, especially with carbon offsets, since the prices are too low to incentivize institutions and uh, people to engage with them. Another important concept that you uh, came up with is the weighting of the global carbon rewards, especially there's a social weighting and there's also a weighting for ecological experts. If I'm not mistaken, with the weighting, it includes public participation via voting. This is a very interesting concept that 
goes with the global carbon reward policy. So just by way of background, it might be worthwhile just talking about the carbon tax first before we discuss the global carbon reward. If we think about the carbon tax, we do know from economics that the economists have described the negative externality, the impact, as a social cost of carbon. However, many economists and philosophers have pointed out that this social cost of carbon doesn't really address some really important issues for sustainability. One issue that it's not very good at dealing with are moral damages. So that would include things like lost culture, lost languages, lost architecture, art, and uh, impacts on communities that you just can't put a price on. Then there's biodiversity loss and ecosystem breakdown. That is also extremely difficult, if not impossible, to put a price on. The only things we really put prices on in the economy are goods and services that are traded because that's how prices are created. Now, if we look at the ecological and moral damages and then now consider the reward, what's interesting about the global carbon reward is that it opens up an opportunity to deal with those two problems that you can't really address with taxes. And the way we can do that is to adjust the rewards higher or lower to reflect the co-benefits or the harms that are created by individual projects. So the idea here is that in addition to the reward, which would be provided as the carbon currency, we'll invite residents and experts to form stakeholder groups to, in effect, provide their preferences in a decentralized governance model to vote on what is important to them. So, for example, if we had a community of people living, let's say, in the Amazon, it could be an indigenous tribe or it could be a small town in the United States, they will be allowed, invited to form a stakeholder group and then register what they want for their own well-being. That's one kind of group. The other kind of group is an expert group of biologists and scientists and land protectors who would give their opinion on how to protect and look after biodiversity and ecosystems. And then there's a third group of experts who will give their opinion and priorities for energy reliability. So by collecting these opinions from these groups, three groups, communities, ecological, biological experts, and energy experts, we can then use that to weight up and down our rewards to further incentivize companies, businesses, to provide cleaner energy, cleaner businesses, and carbon removal in ways that are better for everybody in terms of well-being, ecological health, and energy reliability. In a sense, we could describe this governance model as an attempt to implement an idea called virtuous investing or a a virtuous circle of investing. And this is really about managing trade-offs because whenever we do anything to produce energy or take carbon out of the atmosphere, we're going to have impacts on some people or the environment in some way or other. And this has been discussed quite a lot amongst people who talk about uh, bright green lies. This is the notion that solar PV and wind energy do not come without impacts on the environment because to build solar PV, you need resources and it takes up a lot of land. And so there's always a trade-off. And the governance model that we're describing now is really about managing those trade-offs 
for the best possible outcomes. Speaking of governance, I saw on the website you also have part of a governance model is also to have a carbon exchange authority and carbon exchange standard. Uh, could you elaborate more about that, please? Yes. If we think back in history, just recently, really quite recently, the end of World War II, before our time, of course, but the Bretton Woods, very well-known agreement between 44 nations at the end of World War II, they agreed on really what's called a gold standard, the gold window. So this new standard, we've got to give it a name. We might as well call it the Carbon Exchange Standard. And the Carbon Exchange Standard includes all of the rules and guidelines for managing the supply of the currency. And that means the rules and guidelines for figuring out how much of the currency to give enterprises and the rules and guidelines for coordinating the central banks with their currency trading operation. So that's really talking about supply and demand for the currency. All of that information and really collectively is called the carbon exchange standard. And we, we will need a new international institution called a carbon exchange authority to implement that standard. So these are just the terms that make the most sense for implementing the policy. So let's move on to the implementation phase uh, from 2025 uh, onwards. I know there's the network for green financial systems that has now close to 90 members, but right now they mostly engage in uh, risk analysis and benchmarking and so on. Now, uh, you have an idea to obviously create a multilateral authority, which I'm guessing is the Carbon Exchange Authority, but also have an international treaty. Well, I think earlier we touched on central banks a little bit about their mandates. The NGFS, the Network for Greening the Financial System, holds conferences and they publish their uh, advice and so on. What I gather from reading their advice and listening to what they're saying on the internet, it appears that they do not yet have a reason or justification for central banks to be responsible for the Paris Climate Agreement. Their philosophy currently is that governments should take care of that and central banks kind of should be left to do what they're already doing. What they are doing is fairly passive. They have an understanding that they need to manage the financial system because there are risks caused by climate change, financial risks. But what I argue through the carbon pricing matrix that I mentioned and this new policy, the global carbon reward, what I propose is that that philosophy is out of date and that they have to move up Uh, from their current philosophy to a whole new paradigm, a major paradigm shift where central banks need to commit to actually being the key institutions for ensuring we get to the Paris goals. So what I argue is that they're currently only responding passively and that they need to be responding proactively, meaning they need to provide scalable debt-free climate finance to fund the transition to net zero and to achieve the Paris goals. So if they are going to do that, they need two things. They need a policy and they need a justification for that policy. So the policy that they would be implementing from their perspective is called carbon quantitative easing. So that's all they will do. They will just simply create more currency when needed and then they'll use that to buy the carbon currency under the directions of our proposed carbon exchange authority. The justification is that the world simply will never achieve, in my opinion, never achieve the level of cooperation we need to get to the Paris goals without this approach. Because the other policies, be they regulatory laws or be they taxes, cap and trade and subsidies, they just don't have the scope to truly go global and to coordinate all the world's market and to solicit high level of cooperation we would need between governments, between businesses 
and citizens everywhere. Moreover, with a global carbon reward and this approach, there are other benefits that are not immediately obvious. So one of the benefits is that a global carbon reward, what it does is it not only rewards enterprises, it collects all their information that's relevant to their mitigation. It analyzes the data and shares it with the rest of the world. So we will have a very data-rich experience where all market actors in the world will have access to very important statistics on how it's most profitable to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So if the markets have that information, and everybody can invest in it and trade the currency at a profit, we can therefore transfer purchasing power from all the world's fiat currencies, national currencies, and leverage it all into the new carbon currency so that we can mitigate at the speed and scale we need. Now, I'll just say one more thing, uh, Jonas. I, I know I'm, I'm going on a bit long now, but I mentioned the information experience is important. There's another really important idea that is in the literature, but it's not discussed by economists. And that's the notion of carrot and stick incentives. So there are a number of studies that have shown experimentally with groups of people that optimize or maximize cooperation within groups of people. The best way to do that is to combine both carrot and stick incentives. So if you only apply sticks, for example, taxes, or if you only apply carrots, for example, subsidies or rewards, you definitely won't get optimum cooperation. But the scientists have found that if you start with carrots first and then follow up with sticks, that's the way to optimize cooperation for groups of people who are interacting in competitive games. And so if we just extrapolate that understanding to the whole economy, we can bring cooperation between people up to a whole new level. And this is how we can make a breakthrough. And maybe going on a little bit long, but I just want to reflect for a moment on what environmentalists are saying about our climate crisis. So let's take Greta Thunberg, for example. She says that the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. So what I'm saying is that that's not true. This is really important. What I'm saying is we don't have all the answers because the economics of carbon pricing appears to be incomplete. If we don't have the right policy toolkit, we just won't get there because unless we have the right policies, we won't be able to implement those technologies because the right kind of finance won't get to the right people at the right times. And that's really the issue here, I think. Thank you, Dalton. Uh, so we just spoke about the implementation phase, but uh, before that, we on your website, you have the development phase, uh, phase two between 2021 and 2025 where the global carbon reward will need to develop and engage in other projects. And uh, you could say this podcast is a form of public dissemination, so we're making some progress there. But regarding other projects, some of our listeners may be uh, willing to develop partnerships. Could you tell us more about what uh, your expectations are? Yes, Jonas. We are currently just finishing off our action plan, business plan for next year. And so we're going into a phase we might call the, the global carbon reward demonstration. The reason we want to demonstrate the policy is because this would likely be the fastest and most effective way to communicate the policy to the world. And that's simply by demonstrating it. So the demonstration ideally will involve a few countries, possibly the United States, 
and a couple other countries, developing countries. We will invite in maybe a dozen climate mitigating technologies and we will reward them carbon currency and we'll run it as a live demonstration and everyone in the world can watch and be involved in some way. Now, so people who are listening and they'd like to be involved in this, you're more than welcome to contact us. Just email info at globalcarbonreward.org or go to our website. There's under contacts, just send us a message. We could definitely use the help of volunteers. And we're also interested in partnering with corporations who'd like to sponsor us. Corporations that have climate mitigating technologies could be electric vehicles, electricity storage devices. It could be low energy buildings. It could be ways to sequester carbon in soil with new cropping methods and so on and so forth. Anything that really works and can be demonstrated in a live proof of concept, please contact us. We are now going into our fundraising campaign and we're looking to raise somewhere around half a million dollars to complete our work for next year. And then the actual demonstration will last about three or four years. During that time, we will advocate the policy and then I think more politicians and policymakers and grassroots environmentalists will see what we're doing and I think they will understand why this is a good idea in that we shouldn't have to worry about pain to mitigate climate change. We can create the money through central banking and through new currency and manage it with monetary policy. If we do that and we complement that with taxes, regulations, cap and trade and so on, I think we can get to the Paris goals. Without this global carbon reward, my advice to anyone who's listening, I do not think we'll have a chance of getting there. The probabilities are just too low. So we're reaching the end of the interview and usually, uh, Delta and I like to close off the interview with a personal advice related question. So Dalton, I'm really impressed by uh, uh, the fact that uh, you come from a technical or scientific background and you've been able to understand all these economic financial concepts and develop uh, your own concepts. I wish more people in the finance sector or economics uh, sector like me would, would take that effort and understand the other side because there's often a lot of miscommunication. Also on the, on the website, you've even taken the time to have a section for biophysics. I don't think there's any central banker that has ever done that before. Uh, for having a section, uh, a specific focus on uh, the biophysics of uh, monetary policy. So could you tell us about what advice would you have for someone from a scientific or technical background who wants to engage more in, in economic and uh, financial discussions? Thanks for the question. This is actually very important because, as you said, I, I don't come from an economics or finance background. I'm trained as an engineer. I did my first degree in civil engineering and I did a doctorate in chemical engineering. So people might wonder how I actually came to work in this financial policy, central banking, carbon pricing, and so on. Well, to be honest with you, obviously I didn't study economics and cover all the textbooks to put it all together. It's actually not the way I resolved this problem. What I did was I took an epistemic method. So I used an epistemic approach where I look for complementary and opposite relationships. So my hunch was that the carrot and stick approach, call it taxes and rewards if you like, I believe that somehow they are linked to the two objectives that I mentioned earlier on. First is efficiency and the second is effectiveness for risk management. So my hunch was that those relationships are somehow explained biophysically that they can't be explained through the social sciences because the relationships are too fundamental. 
So what I did is I took those concepts and I tried to understand them through the physics and the chemistry and thermodynamics of carbon dioxide respiration and combustion, which is one pathway in the fast carbon cycle, and then photosynthesis and carbon removal, which is the other pathway in the fast carbon cycle. So what I did is I developed a systems diagram and a biophysical model that works thermodynamically, and it also explains the theory and the policy at the same time. And so by solving both the biophysical and the economic, what I did is I found the concepts that match or marry with the complementary opposite epistemology. And so all the things that I've studied in, in economics and finance, or learnt I should say, is really a reflection of those complementary opposite relationships. I, I didn't randomly uh, investigate or read on finance. I, I wouldn't have had time for that. I just focused in what I believed satisfy that epistemology. And as it turns out, I think my hunch is correct. And so I have quite a deep theory that underpins the biophysics. The biophysical systems diagram, it has a name. It's called the living systems economy. And I'll just end with uh, a short comment about the living systems economy. I think what's interesting about it is that it can explain a steady state economy, a circular economy, a degrowth economy, but not in the way that other economists and philosophers are discussing these issues. What the living systems economy says is that before we can go to degrowth or before we can achieve circularity or before we can get to a steady state or anything like that, we have to go through another phase called optimal growth. So we need to have optimal growth where human beings are cooperating at a maximal level for climate mitigation. And then if we're successful, we can approach something like a steady state. And if we're not, we have to go to degrowth and possibly also solar radiation management, which is that quite unpopular concept of geoengineering. But that's another story for another day. Geoengineering is another multifaceted issue of the climate crisis. Uh, thank you, Dalton, for this great interview. I, I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will learn a lot and hopefully uh, engage in your initiative. Have a great day. Thanks, Jonas. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.